0: Hi, my name is Maximilian Alvarez, and I am the host of the podcast Working People, based out of Baltimore, uh, brought to you in partnership with In These Times Magazine. Check out my show and all the great shows on the Labor Radio Podcast Network. Hey everyone, Uh, this is your host, Maximilian Alvarez. Uh, As always, you are listening to Working People, a podcast about the lives, jobs, dreams, and struggles of the
1: working class today. Dear friends, welcome to the Labor Radio Podcast Network series highlighting the work of our members. The growing network of over 70 shows in four countries serves as a one-stop shop for audiences looking for labor content and as a resource for labor broadcasters, podcasters, and content producers. My name is Evan Papp, and I produce Empathy Media Lab's podcasts on labor, political economy, arts, and culture, and we're a proud member of the Labor Radio Podcast Network. Today, I'm speaking with Maximilian Alvarez. He's the editor-in-chief at Real News Network, and he hosts the podcast Working People, which focuses on working-class lives in 21st century America. In every episode, you'll hear interviews with workers from around the country, from all walks of life. And they talk about their life stories, their jobs, politics, and families, their joys and hopes and frustrations. Max, it's a great pleasure to be talking to you this evening. And uh, could you tell me a little bit about yourself, where you grew up and what led you to organize labor?
0: Sure, man, yeah, thanks so much for, for doing this. And shout out to everyone at the Labor Radio Podcast Network. Uh, which anyone watching should check out um, and check out all the shows. So, yeah, you know, my name is Maximilian Alvarez. Um, I am, as of uh, last month, the new editor-in-chief at the Real News Network, like you said. Um, and I, you know, have been making Working People, the show, for uh, I think three going on four years now. And, you know, I'm I'm originally from Southern California. Um, I've mentioned this on the show a lot of times that I grew up, very Catholic and very conservative. And I'm, I'm the son of, you know, a Mexican immigrant who himself grew up dirt poor, became a citizen in the 1980s and, you know, married my mom. And on my mom's side, you know, there were a lot of stories of poverty and struggle as well. And so that was very much kind of baked into our family history and all the stories that we would hear from family members growing up. And so there was, you know, I think a very strong class consciousness at least in terms of like how our family understood our history and the struggle of kind of providing the life that, that myself and my siblings were able to live. And, you know, that really kind of started to become a, a major point of fascination for me um, as our family went through, I think, one of its most trying times, which was a, t- a trying time for millions and millions of people during the Great Recession, you know, in 2007, 2008 and in the years uh, afterwards, right? You know, our family um, had had kind of fought and clawed its way to the middle class and in the blink of an eye, that all went away. Uh, We lost uh, the house that I grew up in. My folks lost their jobs. My dad was driving for Uber. My mom was working whatever service job she could find. And, you know, I myself, after graduating college, was working as, you know, 12, 13 hour shifts as a temp worker in factories and warehouses in Southern California. And on top of that, you know, I've worked lots of uh, service industry jobs. I was a pizza delivery man. I was a waiter. I worked at a frozen yogurt place. So like, you know, I've done a lot of, a lot of odd jobs, a lot of uh, minimum wage jobs in the past. And, you know, it was it was during that period when our family had essentially lost everything. And I noticed that we we were in fact kind of losing ourselves and losing each other in that very process, right? We were, we were receding into ourselves. We weren't giving ourselves the kind of time and space and care to talk about what we were going through, the trauma that we were all experiencing. Instead, we were doing what, you know, capitalism encourages us to do, which is to internalize these deeply systemic failures as, as ultimately very personal failures, that, that it was all our fault and that we had no one to blame but ourselves. And um, we punished ourselves for that. And I could see it in my father, I could see it in my mom, I felt it in myself. And so what I wanted to do was use the medium of podcasting to provide you know, a chance for people like my, my dad, who was the very first guest I ever had on the show, to open up and talk about what they were going through. Because I noticed that when my dad was driving Uber, he was talking to like the people that he was driving. And it was then that he actually realized um, when he was talking to his passengers that you know, he, he would just talk to them about their lives and he realized that he was driving people his age to their second or third job. He was driving people who came from the same place that he did, uh, who had also lost everything it was then that he realized he wasn't alone, and that it wasn't all his fault, and that this was a deeply systemic crisis that you know, working people had suffered the results of. And that really kind of reminded me of the power of workers talking to one another, sharing their stories, and, and kind of showing their scars to one another and listening to one another. You know, there's real power in that. There's real power to build worker solidarity in sharing those stories and in and genuinely listening to one another, giving each other that kind of gift. And that's really what working people is all about, is, is a space for people to feel heard, to feel seen, and to, you know, have their stories and their lives connect with those of anyone who's listening.
1: Very powerful uh, and very appreciated. Thank you for sharing that. I also want to impl- like talk a little bit about your studies in uh graduate school. I'm I also spent some time uh undergraduate at uh in Ann Arbor and uh what did you study and uh can I call you a doctor as well?
0: So now now you can. Um so like it uh I wouldn't wish um you know what I went through on my worst enemy which was um you know, I, I had taken a job out of graduate school. And so I was working full time for about a year and a half and was producing working people. And at the same time, I was trying to kind of finish my PhD dissertation. Uh, and then when the pandemic hit, like, you know, I, it it was just so hard to justify all that labor and all that kind of emotional toil that, as you know, like, you know, academics have... You know, I'm not going to pretend that I, I, I didn't have it worse at the warehouses than I had in graduate school. Like, I would much rather be doing academic labor than, you know, the other jobs that I've, been, that I've done in the past. But at the same time, you know, academia has many of its own, like, inbuilt systems of exploitation and dehumanization and imposed, forcibly imposed hierarchy there's a, lot, there's a lot of you know, people who are taking advantage of in an academia and it, the, the system has become very predatory and it really weighs on people, especially people at the bottom, you know, adjuncts, graduate students, even students, people you know, who, who don't come from wealth, people who don't have the protections of tenure and stuff like that. And so for me, you know, amidst the pandemic, amidst all the other jobs that I was doing, Uh, it was very, very hard to convince myself to kind of stay chained to this desk and finish my damn doctoral dissertation. Um, But, you know, thankfully, with the support of my family and loved ones, I managed to finish. And so yeah, this past summer, uh, I finally completed my dual PhD in history and comparative literature from the University of Michigan, where, you know, actually, like what I studied is very relevant to kind of everything that the labor radio podcast network is about and everything that working people is about, right? Is like, I studied the kind of like radical leftist factions in 20th century Mexico, particularly groups um, before, during and after the Mexican revolution. And I looked at the ways that their politics developed in conversation with changing media technologies, right? So how, you know, Ricardo Flores Magón and the Partido Liberal Mexicano, You know, how they were actually able to help foment a revolution while living in exile in Los Angeles and producing a newspaper using the kind of print technologies that were available to them, using the kind of um, post office, the railroads, and clandestine kind of networks of people who could smuggle issues of Regeneración, their newspaper, across the border, who could smuggle them into union towns and create basically book clubs for people to discuss the articles in that newspaper and talk about how they related to their lives and their work right and so that's something that i think is deeply ingrained in in me and the way that i approach media is that i i try to think both historically and now as a as you know the you know head of the real news and as a podcast producer and as a consumer of media right i think about media not just as kind of like tools to communicate a message right but as kind of media are the connective tissue through which you know like we we can build solidarity through which we can become more engaged in the democratic process and through which we can actually connect with one another and build the kind of world that we deserve and so that's that's really you know what my dissertation was about And hopefully I'm kind of making everything that I learned writing that dissertation somewhat useful in my daily life.
1: Well, when you come up from air in uh, 2021 and beyond, I'll look forward to that dissertation being packaged into a book that I can read uh, (laughs) whenever you're ready for that. So moving on to the next question, a lot of people have grown up in this country without any class consciousness, without any awareness of organized labor. And, may take no interest in labor news because they just don't know it exists or that uh, it could be valuable to them. So why do you think unions and organized labor and specifically what you're doing with working people is important and should be covered?
0: Well, you know, like I said, like it's it's not for nothing that I kind of constantly remind my listeners that, you know, where I come from, right, That that I did grow up. Very conservative um, in Southern California, in a in a particularly conservative pocket of Southern California, right? Is that you know I I like so many other people, um, you know, in our generation, like grew up at a time when unions were not, you know, discussed in in like a positive light, right? The kind of war on unions and on organized labor in general has been relentless and ongoing for decades, and the propaganda has been very effective, right? And so. You know, I grew up kind of hearing all of the standard talking points that, you know, have been fed into popular culture, pumped through the air vents of talk radio, of Fox News, of documentaries like Waiting for Superman, right? I heard all of those talking points about how unions protect bad employees or bad teachers who should be fired, but, you know, can't get fired because of the union, You know, I, I, I heard about how unions stifle, you know, like one's kind of hard work. Like if you want to get ahead at your job, if you want to get promoted, you know, it, if you're in a union, you know, the talking points when you're not gonna be able to do that because unions care more about seniority than about uh, kind of recognizing hard work and stuff like that. And so, you know, coming from the more conservative side of our family, you know, those messages, I think, really kind of resonated with other messages that we had received growing up, messages that aren't wrong in a lot of senses, messages about how we needed to kind of be responsible for our own future, how we needed to work twice as hard to get ahead, right? How we needed to value self-determination and, and, and personal responsibility and not kind of blame the system for, you know, our our inability to kind of succeed, right? These were, these were the talking points that I grew up with. And, um, you know, I, I did notice that, you know, on, on, on the other side of the family, um, particularly the Mexican side, you know, a lot of my tios and tias were Democrats because they had union jobs, right? My, my Tio Miguel was a teamster. My Tio Chano worked for the post office, um, you know, I like my my grandpa on that side was a was a teacher. Um, so, you know, I started to realize the older I got, kind of how much our family broke along those kind of political lines, and how much kind of being in a union really kind of factored into that. And no one in like my immediate family was actually part of a union. And so you know it was a long and winding road for me to kind of unlearn a lot of that propaganda unlearn a lot of those negative stereotypes that had been fed to me by you know actors who have a vested interest in um, you know like vilifying organized labor and so it was when i think you know at like i said after the recession when i started to realize that You could work your ass off. You could do everything right, like my parents did, like I, you know, thought I had done. And like so many millions of people around this country and and around the world thought they had done, right? They had done what the system told them to do in order to succeed and in order to find, you know, some semblance of stability and self-worth in this system. And still, because of the recklessness, because of the greed, because of, the way that the system is tipped in favor, uh, you know, entirely for the powerful and against the powerless, we still lost everything. And it made me start to really question, you know, more, right, like the the substance of the the kind of anti-union propaganda that I had heard, right? It started to make me realize, like, what value there actually is in workers banding together and ensuring that they take care of the one another, you know, because, you know, without without numbers, without, you know, community, without organized labor, you know, all of us are, you know, can't hold a candle to the bosses. And we are we are put in the most precarious position and the most powerless position. And so, you know, as, as tough of a lesson and as hard of a lesson as it was to learn from, you know, losing kind of everything in our family, you know, it really, really did I think kind of it was a valuable lesson nonetheless.
1: Yeah, there's a there's a lot to unpack there. And it, I grew up with the hearing a lot of the same propaganda against unions that they're, la- you know, lazy and like there's free rider problems. And, and oftentimes a lot of it's racially coded uh, that that as unions opened up from being very, you know, discriminatory to wider then it, it started moving down that road um, and even Proposition 22 in California right now that unfortunately passed that allows this so-called gig economy corporate Titans to be able to squeeze their labor to less than minimum wage. From my understanding, a lot of the drivers identified that they still internalize that this would hurt their freedom by passing that in some ways as a worker by um, putting a regulation on Uber and, and Lyft and DoorDash and all these other you know, so-called gig economy uh, companies that they were losing freedom. And that's how they internalized that propaganda. And what an incredible inversion uh, that took place there. Yeah, um, it's, it's going yeah.
0: to have, Prop 22 is going to be one of those things in history books that marks kind of the turning of a new era in labor history and not in a good way
1: and it's just the beginning of a wave that they're going to keep pushing across the country. I and before moving on to your show, I am curious about you keep you you've uh, said that you came from a conservative background and catholic background. Uh I too was raised catholic and I'm really interested in taking catholicism back from these oftentimes very hypocritical views anti-jesus <laughs> views I would even call them. Uh because I think the pro worker pro labor the helping out the least of us is the most christian view and yet some of the the most reactionary elements in the catholic church are anti labor and anti union so i'm i'm trying to go down that road as well so i'm i am curious about the conservative um aspect is it was it cultural or um just economic as well you
0: know i mean i think it's a it's a question It's incumbent upon all of us, not just in the Labor Radio Podcast Network, but I think anyone who is serious about kind of building worker solidarity across different groups and and across different religious groups, ethnic groups, ideological groups, we have to understand why these messages resonate with people and how, like, what about them is in fact right and correct. Right. What, what justifications do people have for believing in these things because these things give them something, whether that be meaning, purpose, sense of community, right, a, a, a framework for understanding their role in this world and in the afterlife. Right. If we don't build a political project that incorporates those things, that speaks to those deeply human needs that we all have, we're not going to get anywhere. Right. And so I think that you're asking kind of like a really, really essential question. And it's one that I've been excited to see kind of other people ask, uh, especially other people on the left. I would point listeners to kind of the Institute for Christian Socialism, which has been doing some really great work. Um, Yeah. Look into the Catholic workers movement, like look into, there's a really great two part episode on a podcast called the ministry of ideas where they talk about progressive Christianity and the history of America. And I think that, you know, one point that, that really needs to be made over and over again is that the most dominant and visible kind of forces on, you know, representing religious communities today in America, which tend to kind of be the, the evangelical right, they're not, you know, like the end all be all of, you know, religious people in this country. Like this country, I think to this day is still over 70% religious, right? You know, it's very much a majority of people. And, you know, we can't just write that off, nor should we want to, right? But we should also acknowledge that, you know, when it comes to the history of progressive politics in this country, and the people who have been fighting for the progressive changes that, you know, we take for granted today, like granted, there's still a lot of fighting left to do, but we are where we are now because of the blood, sweat and tears of, you know, believers in the past who fought for one another and fought for their fellow human beings, right? And and that includes abolitionists, right? That includes suffragists, that includes people, you know, like who fought in the civil rights movement, like so many of the most progressive and necessary political struggles in our country's history you know, were led by people who, you know, were deeply, uh, you know, of faith, right, who believed very deeply in the moral necessity of what they were doing. And I think that you're absolutely right, that, you know, we need to reclaim that tradition, we need to uplift people who are this very moment, carrying on that tradition, but who don't get the kind of airtime um, that, you know, the the Far religious right does right. There, there is a much more diverse kind of landscape of um, you know religious people and communities uh, you know across this country that we really need to investigate and connect with and and lift up the voices of people who are working in those communities.
1: So, moving on to your show, Working People, uh, could you talk a little bit about how you came to this format, this style? and what it's about.
0: Sure, yeah, I mean, you know, I imagine that I was inspired, largely inspired to make the show for uh, probably a lot of the same reasons that everyone in the Labor Radio Podcast Network was inspired to make their shows, right? Is like, you know, I, I, like so many others, had noticed that in mainstream media especially, but even, you know, just to a large extent, kind of media, independent media media on the left, you know would make reference to working people um but really like wouldn't treat them as kind of the complex beautiful human beings that we all are right wouldn't provide them with the space to tell the story their stories the way they wanted them to be told right to provide them um you know the kind of respect of of you know listening to them and and conversing with them and and kind of really like validating and and working with the kind of experiences that they were sharing with you and the insights that they were sharing with you right there's 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 so many ways that you know just living under this kind of capitalist hellhole that we are trained to disassociate from one another to forget how connected we actually all really are to one another right so much of, of our daily lives is made possible by other people, right? So much of who we are is made possible by other people, right? Not just kind of people in your immediate sphere who have like nurtured you and cared for you and made sure that you didn't die, you know, outside in the cold as an infant, right? That's, that's a huge part of it. But on top of that, you know, you think about the conversation that we're having right now right we are using like language uh that we that was kind of downloaded and absorbed into our brains uh through years of interacting with other people years of being part of a society right years of um <clears throat> you know picking up on social cues and and learning about other people learning to listen learning how to intervene in conversations we use all of that information that was never contained within us from the start. It's always something that, you know, ourselves, the people we call ourselves are always the product of this kind of back and forth circuit between like who we are as flesh and blood beings and the world that we're a part of, right? And so, you know, what that, what that always kind of tells me is that, you know, there, there is a fundamental interconnectedness to to human beings and to human society, that capitalism trains us to unsee. Right? Capitalism tries very hard to hide. Capitalism. One of the things that capitalism has to recommend it <clears throat> is this kind of fantasy of a self-contained life. Right? This kind of you know Thomas Merton. I guess if we're talking Catholicism, wrote uh, you know famously that no man is an island, and you know I think that that's true. In, in so many more ways than, than what we've even been talking about here, right? Not just kind of the things that you learn from other people, but the clothes that you wear, the food that you eat, the technology that you use to communicate and connect with other people. Everything that we use to kind of live our daily lives has millions of handprints of other people who are doing the same. But again, what capitalism trains us to do is think that all that stuff just comes from some from the ether, right? That it just comes from companies, right? That it just manifests out of the ingenuity of you know, like uh, CEOs and stuff like that. No, it's people who make it. It's or the people. magic
1: of the free market, just freely floating, you know, outside of any human uh, regulation or anything like that.
0: Exactly. And so, you know, the the not to go off on on too much of a tangent here, because like you know, I know that, that, you know, with your show as well, this is like the kind of stuff that that you're very interested in. But, you know, this is all to say, right, that like, knowing that this is what we're up against, knowing that we live in a society that actively, systematically tries to make us forget how much we need one another, and how much we depend on one another. It takes a lot of work to like revivify those connections, right? To remind people that they are connected in that way. It takes a lot of patience. It takes a lot of listening, right? That's what I am trying to do with working people, right? I don't mean to kind of get all like too kumbaya with this because the fact of the matter is we do have enemies. We have people who are destroying the planet, who are exploiting workers, who are facilitating and encouraging wars for profit, excuse me, Um, on the regular, right? We have, you know, the battle lines are very clearly drawn, right? But what we do have is numbers, right? What we do have is the, the force and love of our common humanity, right? That is our greatest weapon. And if we're going to use it, right, if we're going to actually harness it, so that we can build solidarity across you know, the various and, and varied uh, pockets of the working class and beyond, then we need to kind of do that patient work of reminding ourselves and each other, you know, that we are human and that we deserve more than this, right? And and the way that I think that you do that is by inviting people to speak about their lives and, and their desires and their failures and and all the kind of messy human stuff that You know, you could be listening to an interview with someone that you've never met and connect with them, you know, on a deeper level than most of the people that you work with on a daily life, on in your daily life, right? There's something really powerful in that. And I think that it's it's a vital ingredient to building the kind of like political front that we need to actually make the changes that uh, we deserve.
1: So the Labor Radio Podcast Network has done some coverage on nonprofits doing union busting and the hypocrisy of these nonprofit do-gooding organization do-gooder organizations that are ultimately throwing their workers under the bus who want their actual rights uh, recognized and in, in becoming a union. And to focus on one of the shows that you did on no evil foods, with this whole kind of movement of clean food being conscious eating uh, food and things like that. You did a, a program on No Evil Foods and it uh, got a lot of interest from around the country and, and beyond, including from No Evil Foods that took a, a very strong interest in that program. Can you talk a little bit uh background on that?
0: Yeah, so um so basically what happened, I guess for anyone who who isn't familiar, but you can you can go on the working people feed and listen to these episodes, right? But basically what happened is, you know, like my show Working People, the standard show um our bread and butter is I interview workers from around the country and we have in-depth chats, like, you know, for an hour, hour and a half, kind of talking about them, their backstory. Uh, their lives, jobs, dreams and struggles, as I always say, right? And, and like issues that come up in their lines of work and, you know, in their, the, the parts of the country that they live in. Right, I've talked to uh, woodcutters in the main like logging industry. Right, teachers in LA, sex workers in New York, right? There's just such a broad diversity of
1: shipbuilders.
0: <laughs> yeah, shipbuilders in Maine, right? I mean, just had so many kind of amazing folks who I'm I'm so honored and privileged that they shared their stories with me. But you know, one of the more recent episodes was um, I I interviewed three, four former employees of No Evil Foods, um, which is, as you said, a vegan. Uh, fake meat company uh, out of North Carolina that really, <clears throat> you know, poses itself and, and brands itself as a progressive company. Right? They use a lot of the like punk rock like aesthetic, and they they incorporate like a lot of like lefty imagery to kind of brand themselves. Like, I think they have one like vegan sausage named after Che Guevara or something like that. Like it's a and, and and basically what I came to realize after speaking to these these workers is that that's all bullshit, right? Because what these workers who came to me told me was, um, you know, they had had been subjected to uh, months of union busting captive audience meetings that management held and made that all the employees kind of attend, where, you know, they they gave very misleading, deliberately misleading, and very like you know typical it was a standard union busting playbook that you hear about all, all the time. So many kind of scare tactics uh, that were presented to the workers as like, you know, if you, if you do this, you're gonna lose your, your freedom, like you said. You're, gonna, you're, you're going to be beholden to the union bureaucracy. You're not gonna be able to resolve like issues on the shop floor like we do now where you can just come to a manager, right? They, they only give you like the worst case scenarios of what might happen if you join a union. And you know, like it was just, it was such a kind of gross uh, indictment, I guess, of the, of the kind of false uh, progressivism of this company. Um, and so what I did was I interviewed these four workers and they talked about how they came to work at No Evil Foods, why they were so invested in working there as I think they're almost all vegans themselves, people who really bought into that progressive messaging uh people who wanted to feel like they were building a career somewhere where they were making a difference right they bought into the messaging and um you know then they you know started talking about forming a union and they saw how quickly the manager the managers changed on them right they saw how quickly managers were to punish kind of people who were involved in the unionization campaign as they were trying to join the UFCW um and what we did was we actually got um, you know a clip of about eight to ten minutes of of those captive audience meetings where you know one of the workers had actually recorded the bosses kind of making these union busting speeches, which was their legal right to do. North Carolina is a one party consent state, and so if the person recording it consents to the recording, the bosses like have no legal grounding to say that it was an illegally obtained recording, and yet. After posting the episode, about a day afterwards, I had a notice from our hosting site, uh, Libsyn, that um, you know a, a complaint had been filed against us um, under the Digital Millennium Copyright Act um, and that the episode had been removed without any prior notification, but just that we found out that No Evil Foods had filed this DMCA takedown request to have the episode removed um, because it included those union busting recordings, um, which they tried to claim were were copyrighted, which was like obviously bullshit. Um, but what they were banking on was just that they could scare people like me and other people in our network even, right? Um, they could scare us into like backing down from telling the truth and, and representing kind of the interests of their workers uh, with the threat of a lawsuit right? Because most, you know, most podcasters are independent podcasters. They don't have a legal team behind them. And so if you get this kind of notice that you could be subject to, you know, like a lawsuit, if you don't take this thing down, you're probably going to get bullied into silence. Uh, but, you know, with uh, the the support of the Labor Radio Podcast Network, I was I was so, you know, heartened to see how everyone in our network rallied to kind of shed light on this, to help us get the word out about this, basically the censorship that No Evil Foods was was you know, trying to do and that they had successfully achieved with other podcasts and even um, print outlets like Vice News, right? They had successfully managed to get uh, a number of articles and podcast uh, episodes that included clips from these captive audience meetings taken down. But um, you know, they finally fucked with the wrong people. And um, we were able to kind of push back with this kind of coalition of folks in the labor radio podcast network. Um, you know, I know UCOM live did a great um, post about it to help us spread the word. Uh, Lauren Gurley at Vice, um, who, you know, originally had some of, of those postings taken down. She wrote a great article about this and and kind of helped put a spotlight on it. And, you know, through the kind of solidarity of folks who follow us and, follow and care about workers, we were able to raise enough of a stink that, you know, now No Evil Foods has this cloud hanging over their head. People know about how, how full of shit they are. And not only that, but how, like, you know, underhanded they are to try to keep, you know, what, should, what is rightfully public information about anti-worker policies
1: first amendment issue
0: even first amendment issues like they they're willing to kind of compromise uh, our first amendment rights to keep people from realizing that actually they're lying to their workers about the value of joining a union right if you want to avoid that bad publicity maybe don't be a fucking union buster like that's that's my advice
1: and libsyn eventually put it back on uh which which is good for libsyn but it still raises the question where i've seen even uh amazon controlled uh I, i forget what their platform is that they've written into the terms that anything critical of amazon can get pulled down and it's in the fine fine print and this is some so when the right wing's always talking about censorship 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 It's also happening on the left wing. And let's be honest with that. And and trying to control the means of production, the means of our platforms as a First Amendment issue, I think is really important. And another thing I I took from this entire story is that what the CEO, I think, was saying was like, hey, our angel investors right now are going to get skittish if you guys try to unionize right now. So it, it also brings in this whole dynamic of all these Wall Street venture capitalists who are so goddamn anti-union, and they're like, "We're going to make the most money the more we can squeeze labor." And as soon as you get union in there, they're going to start trying to share the profits, and we're not going to be able to take our dividends as 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 fat as we want them. So, you know that that dynamic too. I think we we should really continue to to explore and expose as well. That's exactly right. So, moving on to the podcast network, uh, how did you hear about it? how did you join and uh we're always trying to open the uh the door and cast the widest net possible to bring in new members who may be thinking about starting a podcast or may already have one and just don't know about the network so could you talk a little bit about that experience
0: yeah absolutely i mean you know it it was a real like joy to find out about the network right because you know one of the things that has been baked into my career as in media, right? Even as a writer, right? But then as a podcaster and now as editor-in-chief at the Real News Network, right? Is like, I think I have a, a thoroughly anti-capitalist view of what media is and what it should be. And, and what I mean by that is that, you know, when you're not kind of held captive by, you know, the, the incentive structures of, Capitalism, right? When you're not just trying to make money with whatever it is that you're making, right? When you have when you have other ends that you're pursuing, right? That opens up a lot of possibilities for what you can actually do with the media that you're producing. And so for me, even when back when I was writing, um, you know, doing like starting out as a freelance writer, I saw that as an opportunity to bring people into conversation with myself and with with other people that I've been reading right if you go back to like my old baffler articles they're just chock full of hyperlinks to other people's stories and and like I wanted I saw like the print medium as like a great kind of uh, a a great medium to yeah bring people in conversation with one another who might not be uh, aware that the others exist because that's honestly where I'm most energized that's the stuff that you know, makes me feel really excited about what we're doing, right, is like when I feel that we're actually doing it together, and when we're exploring the possibilities of collaboration, and idea generation, and all that good stuff, right, and so that was also very much what I wanted to do with the podcast, right, and and I think if you look at our catalog, we're, uh, gosh, I don't know, with, with all the Patreon episodes, we're creeping up on 200 episodes now, but like, you know it's an interview based show right so i've i wanted from the very beginning for this show to be a collaborative process i wanted it to be a place that listeners could go and and always hear a new person or a new perspective right and then feel like they were part of of that right feel like their input was informing the discussions they were hearing, and that the discussions, in turn, were informing their ways of thinking and stuff like that. There's, there's, there's something incredibly not only valuable and beautiful in that, but in terms, if we're thinking about it politically, there's something vitally ne- necessary in that, right? Because if we're not lifting each other up, if we're not kind of you know using our platforms to give platforms to those who don't have them or to ask questions that aren't being asked on mainstream media. If we're, not, if we're not doing that, then we're just fucking capitalists, right? Then we're, then we're just competing with one another for like, because we wanna lord over our own personal fiefdoms of followers that we've managed to accrue, you know, while building our show. But, but if you think about kind of how much more we could achieve if we were bringing our audiences in conversation with one another, Right. If we were actually kind of showing them that there's a whole world of labor focused content out there. Right. And there are so many workers stories that you haven't heard yet, but you could have access to if you just, you know, if you found out about networks like ours. Right. There, there, there's so much more. There's so many more possibilities that could open up. Um, with the media that we make and with the connections we facilitate through that media. Um, and again, politically with the kind of coalitions we can build um, by thinking of media tactically as a kind of solidarity building, consciousness raising, um, you know, a tool. Um, and, and, you know, that connective tissue that I was talking about, the kind of stuff that reminds us that we are all connected to one another, and that keeps us invested in the struggle, right? If we can use media in that way, then we actually have something that can compete with the kind of corporatist model of, you know, capitalist media, right, with the with the dominance and hegemony of kind of the the fucking media conglomerates that our government has kind of allowed to exist by removing kind of like barrier after barrier, um, and now what we've seen is kind of like you know Disney gobbling up like you know eight different media companies. We have like th- like three uh, internet companies that are now two, I think. <laughs> you know, like but just you know if we want to ha- to compete with that and with the kind of anti-worker propaganda that is that comes from that type of media then we have to collaborate then we have to work together and so this was something that i had always wanted to do with the media that i made but it was also something i wanted to do just in general with other media makers and so i was always hoping and and trying to kind of facilitate networks like these with other left podcasts, um, with other kind of independent media outlets. And it's always it's always a really tough kind of mission, right, because everyone's so busy, um, because, you know, you have to learn how to kind of navigate the ideological differences and, and all that stuff um, and and really maintain like a common goal. And more often than not, when you try to kind of build these coalitions of media producers, It just falls apart unfortunately and so you know i know that i'm not the only one who's experienced this like you know it's it's but it was something that i had tried to engage in like for years you know leading up to my introduction to the labor radio podcast network um and it it had borne some fruit right if you look back in the catalog there's some great crossover episodes that i've done with other great shows and other people representing outlets from current affairs to protean magazine to season of the bitch to horror vanguard like to strike wave right all the these great the michael brooks show right i mean there's there's just so. i'm very proud to look back at the catalog and and see evidence of this kind of collaborative ethos like written into all the episodes that i that i've done and that i've done with other people but i always wanted to do something more than that i wanted to feel like i was part of kind of a collective that, you know, w- would give all of us kind of the strength of our collective efforts, kind of unified by a common mission. And so, you know, I think I was, I was very fortunate um, just to kind of come across perhaps a tweet the, from from the Labor Radio Podcast Network. Um, and maybe, maybe a, a Harold um, kind of tweeted at me or sent me a DM. And so I was like, all right, I'll, I'll check this out. Right? Because there are a lot of there are a lot of grifters out there. There are a lot of people who are trying to sell their wares and like get you to join like something that they're calling a network. But it's really just like a marketing ploy for their nonprofit or whatever. Trying to get um, your,
1: your audience. And- exactly. Right. So there, I think
0: people are right to have a healthy skepticism of, you know, and, and to not want to relinquish their content or feel like they're relinquishing their content to people who don't have their best interest in mind. And so I started doing like a little more digging and I started seeing the shows that were already at that time, part of the labor radio podcast network. And they were shows that I respected, right? Uh, there were a number of them, like America's Workforce that I've, you know, I've been on America's Workforce. I've, I listened to it every morning while I'm drinking my coffee. Like I think Ed Flash Ferens is like, you know, a, a labor radio legend, right?
1: Man, yeah. So I, I saw, I, just northeast of Cleveland where I'm from, where I was born at least and family.
0: Awesome. <laughs> yeah, so so I saw that. I saw, you know, Belabored, which like, I think a lot of our shows wouldn't exist without um, Sarah Jaffe and Michelle Chen's work on Belabored. You know, I saw Working Class History. I, I just saw a lot of shows that, that I knew I respect. And I was like, all right, if they have bought into this, then there must be something here. Right. But then I, I also saw a lot of shows that I had never heard about before. And so I started kind of checking those out. And as our kind of ranks have grown, I've been introduced to kind of like so many people that I never would have perhaps known about, especially in the kind of echo chambers of the current like left media space, because there are also a lot of people in this network who like, you know, just aren't maybe not aren't as far left. Right. You know, like there's a really healthy um, and, and I think productive kind of diversity in the ways that we are all approaching questions of worker justice and of kind of human dignity, right? You, you know, that's not a, those aren't questions that are limited to the left, right? You know, like, but I think it's a really beautiful thing that as we are all asking those questions and pursuing answers to them and, and kind of, trying to find answers to them by way of talking to our fellow workers and by way of listening to the struggles of organized labor um and of individual workers and and kind of learning about the issues that shape uh you know our society and that shape kind of the the landscape upon which workers fight for justice and and all that kind of information that again like you know, we're not, we're not uh, uh, islands unto ourselves, right? All of that, in one way or another, impacts like what I produce and how I think about the show and how I, you know, think about, you know, what topics I want to cover, what types of questions I want to ask people. It's, I think it's, it's emerging as, I think, a, a really beautifully collaborative project and, and one that, you know, has a lot of variation across the different shows that you know anyone who stumbles upon it is going to you know who has any interest in in workers and worker justice is going to have a lot of great stuff to 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 listen to if they come into contact with the labor radio podcast network
1: so in closing looking into the future of organized labor where do you see opportunity and hope
0: i mean it's a really it's a really interesting question right because as you you know you mentioned earlier, right the prop 22 in California, right, which is something I know a lot of us at the at the network have covered um, at working people. I released an episode with the brilliant scholar Vina DuBall, where we talked about why prop 22 is such a landmark uh, setback in labor history, right what it what it is going to do, And basically she walked us through the process of how so-called gig companies like Uber, Lyft and DoorDash and Postmates essentially bought their way into writing their own labor laws, right? The Prop 20, the yes on Prop 22 campaign was the most expensive uh, ballot campaign in U.S. history. Why, right? Why do like, I, I remember, you know, I have, I come from California, right? I had a lot of people asking me like, what my thoughts were on this. Right. And I have to be careful now that I'm like the head of a news network. I can't tell people how to vote. I can just give them the information that I have. Right. But you know, what I had told them was, I was like, you know, cause what, what you, as you mentioned, it's like the way that the, um, the ads kind of trying to get people to support Prop 22, which like they were, they were, garaging, you know, everyone in California with these every ads. Every driver for and every passenger. Every driver, every passenger. The yeah, the I mean, it was just a like, the campaign, you know, the publicity campaign for the yes on twenty two, uh, campaign was just was was absurd. And you know what I would hear from people, because this is what they were being told with the ads, which like, you know, uh, Vina mentions on on the that episode, she's like, it's actually not illegal to just flat out lie in political ads in California, which is what these gig companies did. They lied. They lied about what people would be getting from this and they deliberately did not tell you what they, the gig companies would be getting from this. And that was like the real struggle was to reframe the debate for people because I would just ask them. I said, so this is the most important uh, uh, expensive ballot measure in history, right? In the end, the price tag was over $200 million spent by these gig companies to get this thing passed and to get enough people to believe the lies that they were spreading so that they would vote for it. And what they would tell people is that, um, you know, this will ensure that, yeah, you have the kind of freedom and flexibility that the gig economy offers you, that you'll be able to make your own hours, that you won't be forced into kind of working as a regular employee, yada, yada, yada. And so what I would ask people is a very simple question. I was like, do you think that these companies would spend over $200 million just to protect your like flexible schedule? Like, do you you honestly think that that's like, that they would invest that much capital and this much effort into just preserving that? Like, do you think there may be something else there? And of course, there was right, because this was never about like the drivers themselves and and what you know gig workers themselves might get from this. It was always about what the companies are going to get from this, and what they got is essentially like I said, they bought their way to writing their own labor laws and thus writing into law um, a permanent you know category of third class worker right you know a, a class of worker who um, can now legally make well under minimum wage. Right, That's that's what they've done. They've changed the rules to now where that is perfectly legal. Right? If you're, this, was, you're,
1: this was after regulation was passed and they threatened, hey, we're going to leave and everything else. And then they didn't leave. And now they got this $200 million proposition passed that it takes seven-eighths of the California Assembly to ever remove it, which makes it nearly impossible. So Yeah, yeah,
0: they they... That's another thing is like, do you like, why would they make it virtually impossible to overturn that now? Yeah. You need a seven eighths majority, like in the state um, kind of Senate to, to overturn it like that. So basically it's here to stay. And more than that, um, I know that your question was about what's hopeful and I promise I'm getting there. Um, Because more than that, the reason this was such a significant um, ballot measure is because it happened in California, right? Every, major corporation around the country was looking very intently at what happened with Prop 22 because what they were looking for was if this measure could pass in deep blue California then we can pass it anywhere right so what you're going to see in the year of our Lord 2020 I am very reluctant to make any sort of prediction about the future because if this year has shown us anything it's that you know the world doesn't give a shit about our predictions, right? <laughs> like, imagine where we were a year before yeah, this, right? Yes. So, but I I will comfortably and and assuredly make the prediction that what you're going to see moving forward, right, in the years moving forward, in decades moving forward, right, is a, a, a an acceleration of the shift away from kind of regularly structured jobs with schedules with benefits. With you know, basically, you know, employment status, right? You're going to be seeing um, more and more companies moving away from hiring regular employees, and what we're going to see instead is that those people are going to be replaced by kind of a permanent um, underclass of free-floating task rabbits, right? Who are brought on and and who are forced to kind of Essentially, bid with one another for the lowest common uh, for the lowest kind of price to do piecework, right? To get this or that, you know, like uh, assignment, um, achieve it, get a couple bucks for it, and then move on without any real benefits or protections.
1: And a part of it too is, as I understand it, an Uber driver is only going to get paid when they're in that moment of driving, where a lot of Uber drivers are, and or Lyft drivers, or any of these drivers are waiting somewhere, which makes it very convenient for customers to be able to um, you know, flag them down and get a, a ride in very short time. They can then apply that to even like nurses waiting in hospital wings, because right now they're not dealing with a patient, so they're not gonna get paid. Exactly. And it's only when a patient may come in to critical care that, okay, now you're on the clock, even though you're just waiting on the side, which is absolute insanity
0: it is and uh, i think it's you know i'm glad you brought up that point because this is this is what i mean when i said that they lied they lied to people to their faces and now we're all going to suffer the consequences and they knew exactly what they were doing they knew that they were lying right because if, if they told the truth people would vote against it but like that's exactly where the lie one of the many lies kind of is contained right is they said that like well actually this, this constitutes a pay raise for our workers. And it's like, no, if you look at the fine print, what you were essentially saying is that you were guaranteeing a, a kind of minimum wage only for the hour or for the time that people are on an assignment. So that means when they pick you up and when they're dropping dropping you off, but any other time, which comprises like a lot of uh, you know Uber driver's time, it's an essential part of the job, right? When you are, you know, driving back from somewhere if you have if you have to drive all the way out to LAX and but you can't get a return ride home or you have to go home that's all wasted gas money wasted time that you're not getting paid for now right you know like all the time that you're not deliberately on the clock right is now not their concern and so what that's going to mean and this is what people like Vina labor scholars and so many others were saying it's like if you average this out then the average driver is going to be making like between four and five bucks an hour. Right. And now we have locked that in as like a, a kind of just rubber stamped kind of legal status for these workers. And the effects are going to be devastating, especially as it starts to kind of ripple outwards to other industries. Now, yes, the reason I went on, the reason I went on this kind of depressing kind of rant is, is to talk about like what I think is hopeful, right. Is like, they didn't achieve this without a fight. Right. And people really did start to kind of see perhaps though too late, right. That, um, that, that this was not something that they wanted. Right. And it is forcing people to adapt. Right. It is forcing people to realize that um, if the, if the gig companies are going to refuse to kind of like follow precedent and they're going to kind of try to write their own laws, then, you know, maybe there are ways that we can, in fact, achieve collective worker power without working in the kind of limited, like, you know, restrictions of, you know, like, uh, that are, that are prescribed by kind of um, the, the uh, NLRB, right? Um, Or the National Labor Relations Act, right? I mean, like, there, there are still ways that non-union workers can build collective power. There are still ways that we can, in fact, invest in in, in interpreting and reinterpreting legal loopholes to um, kind of get around these boxes that these companies keep trying to kind of pin us down in, right? And and what I'm seeing right now, out of desperation, out of necessity, is this kind of um, really energetic and creative struggle right to think about how we can in fact still mobilize people and organize people in great numbers um even if like certain uh you know pathways to unionization have been taken away from us right you know it it, it is labor has never taken anything lying down right you know the 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 kind of the history of labor struggle not only in this country but across the world right i i had the great uh, labor leader out there in, in Sioux Falls, um, Cooper Caraway had uh, I had him on the show and he had one of my favorite lines of all time where he said, you know, the labor movement didn't begin with like the first meeting of like the allied, you know, uh, the allied collective of like bricklayers in, in like Massachusetts or something. He said, you know, the first time that one person had to serve another to survive in that moment, the labor movement was born, right? You know, throughout human history, right? That kind of power imbalance that has divided people into workers and owners has forced us to find ways to fight for justice and to fight for dignity and to find ways to work with our fellow workers to achieve those ends. And by necessity, we, we are doing that now. And I think that we have... We are, we are fighting a very uphill battle as we always have been. But what encourages me uh, not only through the many people that I've talked to on my show, right? You mentioned the the shipbuilder in Maine, Jamie Belfler, right? She's a, she's a, you know, our age, she's like in her young thirties and was helping lead this strike. One of the longest private sector strikes in, in recent American history. And they won what they wanted. They got what they needed during a pandemic. Right. And, and they got it with help from people like us in the media who were helping kind of, break the media silence around this strike right there are people like her who are fighting for what's right fighting for her co-workers there are people like vanessa bain who is herself a gig worker and organizer with the gig workers collective out in california who like vanessa is like a real life hero right she is working with these other gig workers i mean there's so many amazing folks over there that I, i i would leave too many out if i tried to name them but these are people who i'm taking inspiration from these are people who are getting knocked down time, after, time and time again by these fucking companies and they keep getting back up and, and building more numbers, right? They keep kind of finding more people and strengthening their message. And if that doesn't give you hope that, you know, like the labor movement will never be, uh, you know, kind of permanently put down, then I don't know what does.
1: Maximilian Alvarez. Thank you for all that you're doing, raising working class voices and strengthening union solidarity. Thanks,
0: brother. Appreciate it. Shout out to the Labor Radio Podcast Network.